I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. On this episode of Newt's World, as part of Founding Fathers Week, I'm talking about the lives and legacies of our original founders and the impact they've had in our country. On this episode, we're going to talk about probably the most misunderstood of the Founding Fathers, John Adams. Adams is a little bit of an odd duck, partly because he's from New England, which at that time was just very different from either New York or Virginia, partly because Adams himself was really, really smart, but he was very argumentative and he was very blunt. He also had enormous courage. Adams had really developed over time a view of the British as a tyranny. He didn't arrive at it immediately. He was also, of all of the Founding Fathers, probably the one who believed the most deeply in the rule of law. And in fact, one of the most creative and courageous parts of his life was his willingness to defend the British soldiers who were charged with murder during the Boston Massacre. It was very unpopular in Boston because it was sort of a lynch mob desire to just, you know, hang them. And Adams said, no, I mean, this whole thing is about the rule of law. He ultimately wrote the Massachusetts Constitution, which served as a model for the U.S. Constitution. And he worked very, very hard to knit together the country. He understood that Virginia, as the biggest colony and then biggest state in population and in wealth, had to be at the center. But at the same time, he also realized that bringing all of New England in really, really mattered. And it's important to remember that in this period, the idea of America is a really sort of vague idea to most people. Most people think of themselves in terms of their colony or later on in terms of their state. 
On Adam's case, he was born in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So it's, again, hard for us to look back and realize, but his early life, starting in 1735 when he was born, you know, he was English. He thought of himself purely as a colonist. He didn't think he was a nationalist. He was educated at Harvard, the first university created in the United States, and gradually came to believe that the British were behaving in the manner of a dictatorship. And the real fight here is over power. It's not over money. The stamp tax and other kind of things are points they fight over. But what they're really fighting over is a core question. Can the British Parliament sitting in London pass laws that affect directly people in the colonies? And the colonies had become increasingly independent, and they were increasingly wealthy. By 1790, they would have about 3 million people, where Britain had about 5 million. So they were really pretty big already. And of course, given their geographic size, they were rapidly going to pass Britain in size and in ultimately in power. So they're looking around thinking, wait a second, why is this parliament sitting in London telling me what to do? And why are they taking money out of my pocket? And why are they rigging the trade laws to favor the British and to hurt the Americans? So all of these things began to build a momentum of criticism in a place like Boston, which had a very, very busy port and which had a trade which included the West Indies. The fact is that they were subject to British regulation in ways that very much disadvantaged the Boston sailors and advantaged the British sailors. And so there was a resentment both about regulations, there was a resentment about taxes, but most of all there was a resentment about power, about where the center of power ought to be. Adams is one of those who comes to believe that in the end the colonies have to become independent, and they recognize that to become independent they need all the colonies on the same side. Massachusetts by itself isn't big enough, isn't strong enough to take on the British. So I think it's important to recognize that Adams and his cousin Samuel Adams, who is more radical than John Adams, more of a populist rabble-rouser, the kind of guy who would dress up like an Indian and throw tea in the harbor, very, very different. John Adams is a scholar. He's an intellectual. He's a man who operates in a law court. He doesn't operate out in the street arousing people. The other thing, by the way, is that Adams' wife, Abigail Adams, is the most famous, certainly the most literate of the founding mothers. And her letters to John are just amazing. And it's very clear that she is sort of the archetype of the modern woman. She operates independently. He is gone for a long time. She's running the family farm. She is sending him advice on everything. She is very well educated. She's just such a remarkable woman. Adams himself, born in Massachusetts, October 30th, 1735, was the oldest son to John Adams Sr. and Susanna Boylston. His father was a deacon in the Congregational Church and earned a living as both a farmer and shoemaker in Braintree, Massachusetts. John wanted to become a farmer, but his father said no. He had to get an education and hoped he would become a minister, which in that period was a very, very prestigious position. But Adams at 15, and it's useful to remember, by the way, that back then you know, people went to college at a much younger age. They also went to work at a much younger age. In Adams' case, at 15, he's off to college. Now, from Braintree to Cambridge is only 12 miles, but it's a very big 12 miles from rural farming to the center of learning in America at that time. Adams was so anxiety-ridden, he almost went home. In his diary, he wrote, quote, 
I at first resolved to return home, but foreseeing the grief of my father, and apprehending he would not only be offended with me, but my master too, whom I sincerely loved, I aroused myself and collected resolution enough to proceed. Also gives you sort of a flavor. This guy's a little bit pompous. He thinks about himself. He thinks about life. He is perfectly at home once he gets used to Harvard. He excels academically, graduates in 1755 at the age of 20, but he doesn't want to be a clergyman. So he decides instead to teach in a Latin school to earn tuition fees to study the law. Now, back then, you usually studied the law by working with a lawyer. When they talked about reading the law, that's what they literally meant. You were in a law office and you were reading all these law books. You were learning about the process. And Adams becomes a lawyer. Now, he's not a very good lawyer. He only had one client in his first year, didn't win his first case until three years after he opened his practice. And part of it is being a lawyer in a small town requires a pleasing personality. Well, Adams wasn't very big on pleasing anybody, including himself. He represented sort of that curmudgeonly New England kind of religiosity. And as long as God was happy with him, what did he care about the rest of us? But he begins to get drawn into the politics of the time. He spoke very much against the Stamp Act of 1765, which was the first effort by Parliament to get money out of the Americans. I mean, here's what had happened. With the help of the Americans, the British won what they called the Seven Years' War, what we called the French and Indian War. Now, the upside and downside of that was they drove the French out of Canada. It was an upside, obviously, because it meant Britain was dominant in all of North America. It was a downside because it meant the Americans no longer looked to Great Britain to protect them because there was no overt threat from France. And so the Americans kind of relaxed and thought, you know, everything's peaceful. Why are you bothering us? The British, however, had run up a huge debt, and they were trying to figure out a way to pay off their debt. And their thinking was, wait a second, you know, we saved you from the French and the Indians. You owe us. And the Americans are going, no, we don't. We volunteered. We fought in the war. It's not our fault. You guys are stupid. And it took longer than it should have because of you. And the result was that the Americans were unhappy to pay it, and the British were unhappy not to get paid. Well, that's sort of like a bad marriage. By 1765, Adams is writing an anonymous essay in the Boston Gazette entitled A Dissertation on Canon and Feudal Law. And this is what he wrote. It seems very manifest from the Stamp Act itself that a design is formed to strip us in a great measure of the means of knowledge by loading the press, the colleges, and even an almanac and a newspaper with restraints and duties, and to introduce the inequalities and dependencies of the feudal system by taking from the poorer sort of people all their little subsistence and conferring it on a set of stamp officers, distributors, and their deputies. This is, by the way, the attitude Americans will take to the Internal Revenue Service and the general attitude Americans have had ever since, which is, why is the government bothering me? I made the money. I want to keep the money. Why are you putting your hand in my pocket? Now, Adams went on to write the Braintree Instructions, which were in opposition to the Stamp Act. He presented it on September 24th, 1765, at the Braintree Town Meeting, which unanimously approved it. And this is a key thing he says. And notice, this is about power. The tax itself is just what they're fighting over. But the underlying core question is, where does power lie? This is what Adams wrote. This is 1765 now, more than a decade before we would declare independence. Quote, and we have always understood it to be a grand and fundamental principle of the British Constitution, 
that no free man should be subjected to any tax to which he has not given his own consent in person or by proxy. The paper was published in Draper's Papers and in newspapers across Massachusetts. More than 40 towns endorsed and adopted it. Then in October 1765, representatives from Massachusetts and eight other colonies met in New York for what was called the Stamp Act Congress. Using Adams' brain tree instructions and other resolutions across the colonies, Pennsylvania lawyer John Dickinson drafted the Declaration of Rights and Grievances, which was sent to George III. Now, this again is 11 years before we will declare our independence. In a December 18, 1765 diary entry, Adams called the Stamp Act, quote, an enormous engine fabricated by the British Parliament for battering down all the rights and liberties of America. Notice again, this is not about money. It is, I want to repeat this one line, an enormous engine for battering down all the rights and liberties of America. This is an attitude about our rights and liberties, which continues up to today. It's why the Second Amendment fight is so deep. It's why the whole fight over the rule of law is so deep. It's why the intrusion of government spying on us arouses such rage. The fact is, Americans have now, for 300 years, had this deep sense that we are a free people and we deeply distrust any government. The British passage of the Townsend Acts in 1767 led to mob violence throughout the colonies. On March 5, 1770, a group of British soldiers were struck with snowballs, ice, and stones. In the chaos, they opened fire and shot five civilians. A few days later, Adams received a note from Captain Preston, who was in jail and on trial for murder of several Boston citizens during the massacre. Preston asked Adams if he would defend him in court, since no one else would agree to it. This is not let me go to Adams because he's the best lawyer around. Just let me go to Adams because he's the only lawyer dumb enough to defend the British. Adams, believing in the rule of law and the right to trial, agreed to defend not only Captain Preston, but the eight other British soldiers charged with murder. Now think about this. Here's a guy who's not a very successful lawyer anyway, but he's a great political writer. He's already having an impact all the way across America with his writing. And now even though he's a patriot, even though he's been very, very opposed to what the British are doing, he does something which confuses the average person. He agrees that he will defend these soldiers. During the week-long trial, Adams argued that it was impossible to prove that Captain Preston had ordered his soldiers to fire. He brought in over 22 witnesses. Adams, during the trial, said, quote, "'Facts are stubborn things.'" And whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or our dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. It's a very powerful moment because in the rule of law, the jury's job is to determine the facts, not to determine the emotions. Adams later went on to say, quote, It is more important that innocence be protected than it is that guilt be punished. For guilt and crimes are so frequent in this world that they cannot all be punished. But if innocence itself is brought to the bar and condemned, perhaps to die, then the citizen will say, whether I do good or whether I do evil is immaterial, for innocence itself is no protection. Close quote. There's seldom been a better explanation of why the rule of law matters. It is the law which protects us from ourselves. It is the law which protects us from the mob. It is the law which protects us from a sudden wave of emotion. During the trial of the eight British soldiers, Adams argued that they acted in self-defense. Adams argued that since it was unclear as to which soldier fired, quote, 
it's of more importance to community that innocence should be protected than it is that guilt should be punished. The jury acquitted six of the eight soldiers, while two who fired directly into the crowd were convicted of manslaughter. This is not an outcome anyone could have predicted at the beginning when Adams took on the trial. On the third anniversary of the Boston Massacre, March 5, 1773, Adams wrote in his diary, quote, Judgment of death against those soldiers would have been as foul a stain upon this country as the execution of the Quakers or witches. This, however, is no reason why the town should not call the action of that night a massacre, nor is it any argument in favor of the governor or a minister. Now notice his reference back to executing Quakers and witches. Remember that Massachusetts had been the scene of the Salem witchcraft trials, a period of people allowing emotions to run amok, to create threats that did not really exist, to prosecute people who clearly in retrospect were innocent. There was a deep feeling that controlling passion and doing what the law required in a calm and reasonable way was essential to avoid the kind of injustice that the Salem witchcraft trials had led to. Hi, this is Newt. We have serious decisions to make about the future of our nation. Americans must confront big government socialism, which has taken over the modern Democratic Party, big business, news media, entertainment, and academia. In my new book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens to save America's future and ensure it remains the greatest nation on earth. It is a must-read for any concerned citizen. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can pre-order my book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, right now at Gingrich360.com book, and the book will be shipped directly to you when it comes out on July 12th. Don't miss out on this special offer to pre-order my new book today. Go to Gingrich360.com book to order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com book. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats 
even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Adams himself, hardly a shrinking violet later called his defending of the British soldiers, quote, one of the most gallant, generous, manly, and disinterested actions of my whole life, and one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered my country. As you can tell, Adams is not a man of modesty or what we might have called somebody who was hiding his talents. He was, in fact, quite cheerful about telling you how great he was. He lost about half of his Boston law practice, by defending the British soldiers. But I think he looked back and thought that was exactly right. Now, this did not mean he was pro-British. It meant he was pro the rule of law. And you can tell that because shortly after this period, he ends up in April 1776 writing thoughts on government in response to a resolution of the North Carolina Provincial Congress. In it, he outlined why he believed three branches of government was necessary. Quote, representation of the people in one assembly being obtained. A question arises whether all the powers of government, legislative, executive, and judicial, shall be left in this body. I think a people cannot be long free, nor ever happy, whose government is in one assembly, close quote. It's important to remember that the founding fathers were very skeptical of the rule of the mob. They thought that the lesson of Athens had been that when you have a pure democracy, that passion influences it, that no one is safe, and that in a moment of passion, anyone can be killed or anyone can have their property taken away. And as a result, there had been a constant effort to try to find a structure to think of themselves sort of as architects of self-government. And they had taken a great deal from Montesquieu, the French theoretician's spirit of the laws. And the spirit of the laws, Montesquieu outlines the idea of dividing power into three separate agencies an agency for the judicial, an agency for the executive, and an agency for legislation, with the thought that by dividing power into three, they will balance each other, and it will be much harder to threaten the freedom of people because there will be no way to gather all that power from all three at the same time. Now, Adams, taking that model, became the primary author of the Massachusetts Constitution in 1780, which is four years after the Declaration of Independence, but right in the middle of the Revolutionary War. The Massachusetts Constitution included many of the themes of the U.S. Constitution. It says, partly drawn from the Declaration of Independence, quote, all men are born free and equal and have certain natural, 
essential, and unalienable rights, among which may be reckoned the right of enjoying and defending their lives and liberties, that of acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and fine, that of seeking and obtaining their safety and happiness. Every subject has a right to be secure from all unreasonable searches and seizures of his person, his houses, his papers, and all his possessions. The people have a right to keep and bear arms for the common defense. Original purpose of the Second Amendment, growing straight out of this line in the Massachusetts Constitution, is simple. The people have a right to keep and to bear arms for the common defense. And what did that mean? It meant both defense against foreigners and defense against their own government. And they got to this because in 1775, in April, when the British Army marched to Concord and Lexington to seize the American weapons, if they had not had a militia, if they had not been prepared to fight, if they had not been able to bear arms, the British would have won instantly. The revolution would have been over. And it was the fact that the Massachusetts farmers did have weapons, did know how to use them, were training as a militia that enabled them to drive the British back into Boston, suffering substantial casualties. Every one of the founding fathers understood that. Every one of the founding fathers believed that you had to have the right to bear arms to remain free, and that if you gave up the right to bear arms, sooner or later, you'd be faced with a dictatorship that would take away all of your rights. And Adams, in that sense, is an explicit, direct statement of that. He goes on to say in the Massachusetts Constitution, quote, the people have a right in an orderly and peaceable manner to assemble, to consult upon the common good, to give instructions to their representatives, and to request of the legislative body by the way of addresses, petitions, or remonstrances, redress of the wrongs done them and of the grievances they suffer. No subsidy, charge, tax, impost, or duties ought to be established, fixed, laid, or levied under any pretext whatsoever without the consent of the people or their representatives in the legislature. Now, if you listen carefully, in the Massachusetts Constitution in 1780, you see the forerunner of the Bill of Rights. And while Jefferson is given credit and Madison actually offered it in the Congress, it's clear that their concept of the Bill of Rights was deeply shaped by John Adams, who gets almost no credit for it. And it's one of Adams's great problems, that he was, in fact, a remarkably important person. He was extremely thoughtful. But at the same time, he didn't have a very good publicity machine. He wasn't a very attractive personality. He was always in Washington's shadow. And then, as you'll see, he's also in Hamilton's shadow. And so Jefferson gets great press, is a great propagandist, and he and Madison get the credit for things that, in fact, John Adams did. Now, after the war and after the Constitution is adopted, Adams comes in second to Washington. Washington is elected unanimously. They had not thought this through. And so you actually voted for the president and vice president at the same time. And whoever came in first got to be president. Whoever came in second got to be vice president. And so you cast both ballots. This would really lead to a mess with Jefferson, because Jefferson and Aaron Burr tie. And so they have a huge fight, because everybody understood Jefferson was supposed to be president, but Aaron Burr, who's a total snake, tries to steal the presidency, something which, of course, permanently estranged him from Jefferson. Well, in 
the very first election we ever had, with people voting twice, Washington is elected president unanimously. And in the second ballot, Adams comes in second, but he only gets 34 votes to Washington's 69. Now, Adams was kind of humiliated because even though Washington clearly was the giant who had won the Revolutionary War and the man who had presided over the Continental Congress, Adams' ego was such that he thought he should be the first to just go home. But he then decided that he would accept it and become vice president. His job was to preside over the Senate. And he was not allowed to debate, which he had done in the Continental Congress. And so in a sense, he has this job that is symbolic, which is not exactly what Adams wanted. And Adams doesn't quite get populism. When they're debating over what's the title for the president, Adams suggests His Highness, the President of the United States of America, and protector of the rights of the same. This is not a country which says His Highness very easily. And it just gives you a flavor that Adams is never quite the common man and never quite has the common touch. And part of Jefferson's genius was that while he was an intellectual and had no more interest in commoners than Adams did, he nonetheless was able to pretend with great skill. And Adams just couldn't. It wasn't worth the effort to him. He had a reasonable relationship to Washington, but he was never a close advisor. He didn't help shape policies. So for eight years, he's just sitting around and has a very similar attitude towards the vice presidency that a number of other vice presidents will get. He writes Abigail at one point, quote, my country has in its wisdom contrived for me the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. He considered seriously resigning, but he stayed on for eight years. Now, the fact is, a vice president's basic job was to wait around and see if the president died. And so Adams was deeply, deeply frustrated. However, his patience worked out, and a four-way race between Adams and Thomas Pinckney on the Federalist ticket and Jefferson and Aaron Burr on the Republican, Adams received 71 electoral votes and Jefferson 68. And therefore, as vice president, Adams, as president of the Senate, opened and read his own election results, proclaiming himself president. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. (sighs) <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? 
Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. In 1796, Alexander Hamilton urged Federalist leaders to support Thomas Pinckney as president to ensure Jefferson's defeat. But Hamilton made no secret of his preference for Pinckney over Adams. In a January 1797 letter to his wife Abigail, Adams said of Hamilton, quote, Hamilton I know to be proud, spirited, conceited, aspiring mortal, always pretending to morality with as debauched morals as old Franklin, who was more his model than anyone I know. As great a hypocrite as any in the U.S., his intrigues in the election I despise. That he has talents, I admit, but I dread none of them. I shall take no notice of his puppyhood, but retain the same opinion of him I always had, and maintain the same conduct towards him I always did. That is, keep him at a distance. Close quote. By the mid-1790s, two political parties existed in the United States, the Federalists and the Democratic-Republicans. By the time Adams became president, the nation was facing worsening relations with France. France, who thought the United States should honor the French-American alliance during the American Revolution, was angered that the U.S. signed the Jay Treaty with Great Britain. French privateers started seizing hundreds of U.S. merchant ships in the Caribbean, beginning in mid-1797. Adams wanted to resolve the issue diplomatically. However, the Federalist Party demanded war. Adams, going against what his party wanted, established a committee of three American diplomats to meet with France's Minister of Foreign Affairs. When the committee arrived, the French demanded large bribes before any negotiations. The diplomats disagreed on whether to pay the bribe and they eventually left without meeting anyone. Fearing that this would push the United States into a war, Adams initially refused to turn over any notes from the diplomats to Congress. When he finally did, Adams redacted the names of the French officials that tried to bribe them, calling them X, Y, and Z instead. The Democratic-Republican Party were angered with France over the bribery, but were against going to war with France. The Federalists, however, were ready to go to war. Adams asking Congress to appropriate funds to create a navy, improve their coastal defenses, and for authority to summon militiamen to active duty if needed. The Navy commissioned privately owned American ships and gave captains permission to seize French ships. Between 1798 and 1800, the private ships captured about 80 French ships. But war 
had never been officially declared. Adams again tried a diplomatic solution, sending diplomats in early 1800. The Democratic-Republicans, more moderate Federalists, and most of the country agreed with this move. But Hamilton and other Federalists were opposed, wanting to go to war instead. By the time the diplomats arrived in France, Napoleon had seized control of the French government. Napoleon signed the Treaty of Mortefontaine, which released the United States from its Revolutionary War alliance with France and brought an end to this quasi-war with France. Adams viewed this peace treaty with France as his greatest accomplishment as president. Later, writing to James Lloyd in January 1818 that he, quote, desire no other inscription over my gravestone than, here lies John Adams, who took upon himself the responsibility of the peace with France in the year 1800. However, Hamilton and many Federalists were deeply upset over Adams negotiating with France. As President Adams decided that he would keep Washington's cabinet rather than appointing his own, Hamilton, who was not a part of Adams' administration, influenced several members of Adams' cabinet. In the spring of 1800, Adams requested the resignation of two cabinet members, Timothy Pickering, the Secretary of State, and James McHenry, the Secretary of War, for listening to Hamilton instead of himself. Pickering opposed Adams' nomination of William S. Smith and Henry Knox as Adjutant General and Second-in-Command of the Army. Pickering also conspired against Adams reporting to Hamilton and other Federalists what went on in cabinet meetings with President Adams. On May 10, 1800, Adams wrote a letter to Timothy Pickering requesting his resignation. Quote, As I perceive a necessity of introducing a change in the administration of the Office of State, I think it proper to make this communication of it to the present Secretary of State that he may have an opportunity of resigning, if he chooses. I should wish the day on which his resignation is to take place to be named by himself. Pickering on May 12, 1800, responded in a letter refusing to resign. Quote, Nevertheless, after deliberately reflecting on the overture you have been pleased to make to me, I do not feel to be in my duty to resign. Adams responded by discharging Pickering. Quote, Divers causes and considerations essential to the administration of the government, in my judgment, require a change in the Department of State. You are hereby discharged from any further service as Secretary of State. On May 6, 1800, James McHenry, on Lake Pickering, wrote his letter of resignation immediately after Adams requested his resignation. In preparation for the 1800 election, Adams separated himself from Hamilton and the Federalists opposed to him. The Federalist Party, however, chose Adams as their presidential candidate and Pinckney as their second choice. Democratic Republicans decided to stay with their 1796 choices, with Thomas Jefferson as their presidential candidate and Aaron Burr as their second choice. 1800 was the last presidential election, where the runner-up of the election would become the vice president. So each party had two candidates, hoping to get their most popular candidate as president and their second most popular as vice president, with the possibility that one candidate from each party could become president and vice president, which, remember, is what had happened in 1796 when Adams became president, but his rival 
Thomas Jefferson became vice president, was a flaw in the original design of the Constitution. From the beginning, Adams had two major issues against him. The first was the deep divide within his party on Adams deciding not to wage war with France. On October 24, 1800, Hamilton wrote a very long pamphlet. It was called Concerning the Public Conduct of John Adams on why he believed Adams should not be reelected as president. Hamilton stated that Adams, quote, does not possess the talents adapted to the administration of government and that there are great and intrinsic defects in his character, which unfit him for the chief magistrate, has certain fixed points of character which tend naturally to the detriment of any cause of which he is the chief, of any administration of which he is the head. It is a fact that he is often liable to paroxysms of anger, which deprive him of self-command and produce very outrageous behavior to those who approach him. Most, if not all, his ministers and several distinguished members of the two houses of Congress have been humiliated by the effects of these gusts of passion. Close quote. In addition to the really deep, bitter hostility between Hamilton and Adams, there was an unpopularity of the alien and sedition laws. These laws basically were an effort to censor the American people. They said if you said certain things, you could be charged. It was just short of treason. People hated the idea that the government could try them for saying the wrong things. In the election, Jefferson and Burr, both the Democratic-Republican candidates, tied with 73 electoral votes. Adams won 65 votes, Pinckney won 64, and John Jay received one vote. Remember that Jay had been the co-author of the Federalist Papers. Interestingly, you now end up with Jefferson and Burr clearly in violation of their agreement. Burr, who was a snake, who will later on shoot Alexander Hamilton, and then after that engage in treasonous acts trying to steal parts of the West from the United States, Burr would not concede to Jefferson. The tie went to the House of Representatives. Everybody understood Jefferson was the candidate for president. Burr was the candidate for vice president. But Burr's ego and ambition led him to try to somehow usurp Jefferson, who was really the founding genius behind the rise of the Democratic-Republican Party, which is today the longest existing political party in the world. The Democratic-Republican Party evolved into just being called the Democratic Party, and it is literally the longest-serving political institution in the world today. An attribute both to Jefferson and to whatever patterns he developed in that party. Adams became the last Federalist president. This was really an amazing moment in history. There was no real experience of an opposition party peacefully taking over. Normally it involved a military coup d'etat, Sometimes it involved a revolution. But here you had a moment where Washington, who had set the stage by voluntarily giving up power when he surrendered his sword after the American Revolution, and then once again giving up power by leaving after eight years in presidency, had really set a tone that people operated within the Constitution. And Adams within the Constitution had lost. And so you had literally the rise of an opposition party which then became the governing party. And in some ways, you know, Adams' willingness to follow the Constitution 
to be a part of a larger system and to subordinate his ego to his patriotism is one of the key moments in American history. Months after losing the 1800 election, Adams threw himself into writing for the rest of his life. Adams wrote his autobiography. He wrote letters to the other founding fathers. In 1812, a mutual friend brought Jefferson and Adams together again, and they exchanged hundreds of letters until their death 14 years later. Interestingly, both Adams and Jefferson died on the same day, July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson died at 12.50 p.m. A few hours after Jefferson's death, Adams woke from sleep and said, Thomas Jefferson survives. These were his last words as he fell into a coma shortly afterwards. At about 6 p.m., Adams died. He was 91 years old. One of the remarkable founding fathers and a man whose dedication to the rule of law, dedication to the concept of a constitution, dedication to a belief in ideas and that legitimate argument mattered, and dedication to subordinating himself to the greater cause of American independence and American self-government, make him one, I think, of the most honorable and most respected of the Founding Fathers. And John Adams can be always approached with an idea that you're going to learn a little bit more by reading what he said. And it's even more true if you will also read what his wife Abigail wrote. She was clearly the most literary of all of the Founding Fathers' wives. And she had a tremendous impact on John by the letters she wrote and by her commitment to public life. So I look back on Adams and think how lucky we were as a country to have citizens like this willing to dedicate themselves to the development of freedom. Thank you for listening, and you can learn more about John Adams at our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus zumo play is your destination for endless entertainment with a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels movies and full tv series you'll easily find something to watch right away and the best part it's all free love music get lost in the 90s with iheart 90s dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iheart radio music channels no logins no signups no accounts no hassle so what are you waiting for start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.